Hey, Icon, Pastor Josh here for our next little section in Romans 8. And uh, before we get started, I just want to just address a small, uh, meaningless little thing, but nonetheless, it is on my mind right now. Um, so we talk a lot at Icon about having our identity in Jesus and, and nothing else because everything else can be shaken. Today, my identity feels just a little bit shaken purely because of this. I feel like I have a Mount Vesuvius in the middle of my forehead and here I am preaching to a camera. Um, and so I'm having to remember that my identity and my confidence does not come from how I look, but is in Jesus. And so I'm just frustrated about it. It's gotta be like, seriously, like smack dab in the middle of my forehead, whatever. What am I, like a, a preteen boy who's still getting zits? Um, but whatever, it's there, and we're going to dive into God's Word nonetheless. So let me, let me pray, and we will jump into our text for today. Father, Father, I, I thank you for your Word, that it is always effective, and that it meets us in the real places of our life, that, that, that when, as we're going through life, and we're, we're, we're living our life and things are coming in and we have thoughts and people have uh, say certain things to us. Your word meets us there in those places of real life. That's why we do what we do here at Icon. That's why we can do what we do here at Icon because your word is all about real life. And so today as we talk about this, this reality of accusation, God, things that so many of us experience, whether inwardly or outwardly, God, I pray that your word would meet us and with power would, would speak to us, God. Would give us, a, give us a, a fuller lens by which to see what you've done in Jesus Christ and what that means for our life lived where there's so many things that we do wrong that are brought to our attention by ourselves, by those outside of us, God. God, I pray that your word would give us comfort today. That you would by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us a confidence in the story that we've been caught up into in Jesus Christ. That's something only your Spirit can do. No cleverness in my words, no, no force of my tone, no attentiveness in my listeners can do any of that. And so I pray, God, that you would be merciful to us and speak to us today. Would you unite your power with my weak words and bear fruit in our lives together here at Icon. We love you, Father, and we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I, like pretty much everyone else, have really been into the show Ted Lasso. Uh, if you are watching that, you are part of just this massive amount of Americans who have fallen in love with the show. And I, I didn't like it at first. I watched a pilot like three times and I, I couldn't understand why people were so obsessed with it. Decided to, to give it uh, episode two a chance and since then I've absolutely loved it. And one of the, th really, the thing that's so uh, striking about that show, that's so appealing about that show is the main character, Ted Lasso. And there's a lot of other great characters, but this, this character is a man who is perennially kind. He is always so kind and gracious and compassionate. And it's a story of the, uh, he was a, an American college football coach who uh, suddenly gets chosen to lead and coach this European soccer team, uh, not knowing anything that he's doing. And the whole time, even as he is encountering difficulty and brushing up against his own incompetence uh, again and again and again and again, he remains so 
kind and gracious and compassionate. Ted Lasso is the man all of us want to be, right? He's the one that we're all drawn to, the, the dream of what we could be and what we want in such a, such a vicious age. But there is a, there's a moment in uh, season one where what seems like the indomitable kindness of Ted Lasso is finally going to break. And it's this moment where, uh, you know, the, the owner of the soccer team, uh, if, you don't, if you haven't watched the show, uh, she, she, it's clear that she hired Ted Lasso purely because she wanted the soccer franchise to fail. Her ex-husband, who left her in a really bad way, used to own this thing. And in spite, she just wants to see it fail. So she hired this American football college, this American college football coach, so that the whole thing would fall apart. And, and as season one is going on more and more and more, the more she just feels convicted and she's haunted by the ways that she's tried to undermine Ted Lasso, this man who remains kind and compassionate and, and positive. And so there comes a moment where she's finally going to tell Ted Lasso what she's done that she has deceived him, that she has used him, that the only reason he's there now is because of her own vengeful heart toward her ex-husband. And she has done so many things in order to undermine what he's trying to build simply so that the whole thing could fail. And as the scene is going on, you see just kind of a, a shift in Ted Lasso's face. And you think, here it is. Here's the moment where he's been deceived. He's already gone through all this other stuff if you, if you watch the show, but he's been, he, he, he's been deceived. This whole thing that he's been brought into, this whole thing that he's been positive about ends up being founded on a lie. And you think, here it is. Here's the moment that the kindness of Ted Lasso is finally going to be exhausted. And of course, it's not. <laughs> Ted Lasso extends forgiveness to this owner of the soccer team and they are reconciled together. And I remember just watching that scene and watching the, the owner of that team confessing that to Ted Lasso and then receiving the word of forgiveness. You just see her whole countenance change. And I thought, that's it. That's it. The breath of relief that she felt in that moment, that what haunted her, what she had really done, what haunted her in that was met not with condemnation, not with rejection, but with love and kindness. And I thought, that's it. That, that's what we all want because we all have things that we've done, that we're doing, that, are, that, that put our closest relationships at risk risk of, uh, of division or of strife or, God forbid, separation from those relationships. And we're so afraid that the things we've done are finally going to catch up to us and bring our condemnation, that we'll be alone, we'll be isolated, we'll be rejected. And we are all longing for that word of forgiveness to be spoken over to us that even in the midst of real wrong. We are forgiven. We all long for that, for that sense of condemnation to be relieved from us, that fear of condemnation relieved from us. Listen to how the author E. Stanley Jones says this. Perhaps the most important thing that can happen to a human being is to have the sense of condemnation lifted from his or her inner life. 
When condemnation rests upon the soul, the shadow of that condemnation darkens one's whole life. Man, is that not true? That when there's that thing that you are haunted by, that, you, that no one else knows about, you're afraid to other, for other people to know about, that fear of condemnation that is burdening you, it's not isolated. You can't compartmentalize that and say, well, it's just this area that I feel dark. It's just this area in which this condemnation or this fear of condemnation is burdening, burdening me down. No, it's all of life. It darkens one's whole life. And so we're all, we, we all want to, that to be lifted from us. And as Christians, we know, we've explored this already in Romans 8, that it has been lifted from us. But we still suffer from accusation. That even if we can get our head around and even maybe receive into our hearts a little bit, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, like we've already explored at the beginning of Romans 8, even if we can receive that, there's still accusations to endure. There's still things that are said to us or about us or even from us that make us feel condemned. And so we got to talk about this reality of accusation because we want to be, we all want to be free from it. And more than that, we need to talk about this reality of accusation because friends, it is one of the main ways, main primary tools in which your faith can be shipwrecked. You know, we, 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 we read the New Testament and we hear different authors in the New Testament telling us that we have this personal evil called, called Satan or the devil that, is, that has come to, to steal and to kill and destroy. And we, we read these texts about having a, an enemy that's, that's prowling around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And we hear that and we automatically think temptation. That that's how evil is wanting to undo us, is wanting to devour us. And that's certainly true. That's certainly true that, that evil wants to shipwreck our faith through deceiving us again and again and again down the road of sin so far that you don't recognize or love Jesus any at all. But friends, there is another way in which evil wants to shipwreck and devour your faith. And that's by undermining it at its foundation through accusation. Taking away every bit of confidence, every bit of peace, every bit of life and lightness that the gospel offers you, taking that away by making accusation something to, to, to get into you and change how you think about yourself, how you think about God, how you think about relationships, and so we've got to, we've got to talk about this, this reality of accusation and how in the world does a Christian not only endure it, but deal with it? How do, how do we address it? And so today we're, we're, we're still in Romans 8. Like I said, we're going to actually finish our series going slowly through the rest of this text over the next, uh, I guess, two weeks after this. And, and today we find ourselves in verse 34 where Paul gives another question. That's what this this section is all about these rhetorical questions that are meant to, 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 to hit us in a certain place. And, and listen to what he says as we talk about accusation. Verse 34. Who, is to, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And this is, you know, as Paul goes into the next questions that he's asking, in the same way as the ones that we covered from last week, we read those questions, and if we're honest, they are weird questions. <laughs> because who, who, who can bring any charge against us? Who, who is there who's able to condemn us? Anyone! <laughs> Anyone who, who knows me, who knows you, who spends any meaningful time with you is able to come up with some sort of charge, some sort of, is able to point something out in your life, some habit, some practice, some, some feeling, whatever it may be, is able to point something out in your life that should be a charge against you, that should condemn you. And so this, this, is a, this is a strange question. Anyone who can know us is able to condemn us because we are so flawed and broken and still, even as Christians, so prone back into sin. You know, we read things in Proverbs about how the fool, like, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. That's us. That's all of us. We return to our Folly, though it's shown to be foolishness again and again and again, we still do these things. We still practice these sins. So this is a, this is a weird question. And he's going to get into, into answering it and providing some relief. But I, I, I just want to point out how encouraging it is that Paul asked this question. Because the only reason he has to ask this question is if he knows that there are things in our life that are able to charge us. He's pastorally aware enough to know that there are things that even Christians still do that on, on its face seem as though they should condemn us. What, what a pastorally aware moment of Paul <laughs> to know not just do we need to, you know, all the other questions, not just do we need to not only do we, we struggle with the love of God and whether it's there for us, or we, we struggle, like we talked about last week, for, for God's protection and provision, we have those questions, but we have these questions of fear. I, I, I feel prone to condemnation. I feel open to condemnation because there's things in my life that I do. You have things in your life, if you are honest, and if you're not honest enough, Ask the one closest to you. God forbid, ask your spouse if you're brave enough. And they will happily point out to you the ways in which there are still things in your life, practices and ways of thinking, ways of speaking, that are open to accusation, that are open to having a charge level against you. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. It's good for us to notice. It's good for us to see that God put this in his word because he knows that his people are going to struggle with it, are going to struggle with whether they exist under condemnation or not. And as he goes in, he, he asks these questions and then he provides an answer. And I, and I want you to see how Paul doesn't just provide an objective theological truth, but actually rehearses the gospel story. Let's, let's, let's read the two verses again. Who shall bring 
any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Okay, objective theological truth. The reason why no one can bring any charge against God's elect is ultimately because it is God's job to justify. That's an objective theological truth, that this is something that's, that's true. It's not up to anyone else. Our, 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 what he calls justification is not threatened by anyone else that can bring any charge against us, ultimately because our justification comes from God. But then he goes on, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see what he did there? Do you see what Paul did? He did not just give another objection, another objective theological truth, though he's been doing that all throughout Romans. He's been throwing out all these like one-liners that we love about the truth of the gospel, but here he rehearses the gospel story. That in, in, in trying to, to pastorally care for the Roman Christians and addressing the, the, the accusations that they carry and that come into their life. He doesn't just provide a one just solid truth to hold on to, but he actually roots his answer in story. And this is important to see because he's, again, he's trying to address accusation and, and charges that can come against us. And the reason I think he uh, pulls, the, pulls the story of the gospel into, us, into this is because accusation itself exists in story. Accusation exists in story. When we have something that we've done that's brought up to us and leveled against us, the, the accuracy and truth of it, you know, not, not getting into that. We'll get into that. But when it's leveled against us, it is not, I want you to hear this, it is not just a list of the things that you've done wrong. Accusation, especially when used as a tool in the hands of our great enemy, is not done in such a way so as to just make you aware of what you've done. Instead, accusation comes at you as a story. It's not just listing your wrongs, but it's actually weaving a story together about who or what you are. It's not just telling you what you've done, but it's taking the truth and the accuracy of what you've done and now laying over you a certain identity, a certain place that because you've done this, you are now this and can only live this way, this story from here on out. Accusation doesn't come at us as just a, a, a pointing out of the charges of sin that should be leveled against us. Instead, the enemy and even our own sinful minds begin to just weave together this story that not only have you done things wrong, but because you've done those things wrong, you are actually this type of person. Isn't it amazing? tragically amazing, that accusation, the ones we really struggle with, the ones that really get us down and bog us down, they have a certain fittedness to your story. Have you ever noticed that? That the, you know, the, the sins that you struggle with or that, you, you know, that you're going through, 
the ones you're failing in again and again and again, there's a number of those. There's, there's a number of those. But it's only certain ones, it seems, that really, that really jab at your heart as an accusation. And it's those ones that have a particular fittedness to your story, that there's something that your life has had, there's some trajectory of your life, there's some theme that's gone on in your life that this specific accusation fits perfectly into. And so I've, I've shared before, you know, I've shared this story multiple times, but when I was, when I was 18 and a, a lot of secret sin came out of my life and got brought into the light, I was ashamed. I felt so dirty. And in that moment of fear and embarrassment and humiliation, I had the words spoken to me by my then girlfriend to say, you're disgusting. You know that? Those words have a certain fittedness in my story. They find a place in my heart. That accusation finds a place in, what, in, 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 in this theme that my heart carries, that I'm dirty and broken, that I am disgusting. There could have been a number of other things that she could have said, that she could have pointed out to me and really jabbed me with, but it was that thing. It was that core insecurity about Joshua Searcy that could be traced all through his life that fit in perfectly. Accusation is fitted to your story. And that's why Paul doesn't just give one objective theological truth for us to hold on to, but actually tries to take us, <coughs> tries to take us out of our own story and into the story of Jesus Christ. Paul's rehearsal of the gospel story is meant to show that the story of your life now has a new plot line. No matter what themes have been carried on in your life, what themes of brokenness and failure and sin, no matter what that is, that's no longer your story. And so accusation doesn't have a place to stick onto because it's not your story anymore. It's the plot line, the story of Jesus Christ, what he's done. And so Paul tells the greater story of what Jesus Christ has done in order to address the accusation and the charges that you so often carry. And what's that story? We know it so well as Christians, but it is the story that we live into. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's where Paul picks up in the story of the gospel. And he says, this one, Christ Jesus, the anointed Savior in Christ, the perfect one, he died. He's the one who died. Meaning, Paul, Paul, Paul put Paul leaning into that language, meaning he's the perfect one. He's the one who lived a sinless life. And yet he's the one who died to bear the burden and the penalty of your sin. That's the first start of the, the, first start of the plot line. Next, more than that, who was raised. Now, what is the resurrection of Jesus for? Why does he lean into that? Well, the resurrection of Jesus is, is both to show us that God is doing a new thing. He's creating new life, and now he has defeated death. But also, the resurrection of Jesus is God's stamp of approval on his sacrifice for sin, saying what he did there on the cross, what he accomplished is full, accepted, 
pruned. It's stamped. And so all the sin that you carry, that level accusations against you, that, 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 that should be charges against you, Jesus took care of that on the cross. He died, and his resurrection shows that he's paid everything in full. More than that, who not only was raised, but who is at the right hand of God, who's been, we forget this so often in the gospel story, but Jesus ascended to God and is now at his right hand in, sh in, in, in show of full approval of, he's sitting because <laughs> he's not, ha he doesn't have anything more to accomplish, but yet he's still doing something there, isn't he? who indeed is interceding for us. Meaning right now, even in your consistent areas of sin, Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is reminding God the Father of his, of his sacrifice, of his blood. You are continually, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is continually being applied to you and laid over all your areas of failure. That's the story that Paul leans into here. That's the, that's the story that Paul is trying to root you back into to get you out of the story that, that charges and accusation try to put you into and rather help you find yourself in the story of Jesus Christ. The story of what he himself has done. It's finished. He's been raised. He's, the, he's, he's fully paid for everything. That's shown that he's been raised. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and show a full approval of Jesus' finished work and even right now is interceding for you, applying his sufficient grace to you. Paul's saying, this is the story you live into now, Christian. This is the story you embrace. This is the story you live into. Not the story of accusation that points out everything you've done wrong and because of what you've done wrong, who you actually are. But rather points out everything Jesus has done right and who we are because of that. That's, that's the way the accusation loses its stickiness to us. That's why there's no one to condemn because it's no longer my, it's no, my, my, my life and my standing, my personhood is no longer caught up in the story of my sin, but in the story of Jesus' salvation. Who's to condemn? I'm not even a part of that anymore. I'm not even, that's not even where I find my true story, but rather I find it in the story of Jesus. This is what Paul gives us. That you can ask the question, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's done it. Who's going to threaten that? And who is there to condemn? Anyone who, could, anyone who should be under the, under the story of condemnation has been plucked out of that and placed into the story, the gospel story of Jesus Christ. Fully and finished salvation. Freedom. Who's to condemn then? That's the truth that we live into as Christians. And I would guess that many of you, if you are a Christian, or if you've been around church for any number of time, any amount of time, you probably already know that. You probably have already had that gospel story rehearsed to you, and yet you are still having such trouble receiving that into your heart and really battling against the accusations of condemnation that you still live with. That you're still battling, you're still, you, you still feel weighed down and you don't know how to get that out of you. You don't know how to get that story of condemnation out of you 
and receive into you the story of Jesus Christ. And so to end this sermon, I want to give some practical applications for how you can begin to battle accusation because of this great truth and this rich story that Paul gives here. And so to, to, to walk free from accusation, the first practical application I would give you is this. Do not minimize or defend what you've done. Don't minimize it. Don't brush it away. Don't defend it. Don't say, yes, I did this, but you did that. Yes, I did this, but I had a hard day at work. That's minimizing. And that will not get you anywhere in the world of accusation. But instead, I'm going to say this, and it's going to feel weird. Instead, let the accusation tell the truth. Let the accusation really speak out whatever it is that it has to level against you. And the truth of it. Let it, let it stand. Listen, listen, I love this. This is from uh, the counselor, Dan Allender, in this, in this category of accusation and how to, how, to, how to really deal with it. If the gospel is as good as God offers, then it must have, <coughs> excuse me, then it must have the power to dismantle the atomic bombs we keep hidden in the silos of our unconscious. But the first task is to let the accusations that seem to startle us awake or haunt the edges of our consciousness come to their full fury and darkest assault. Seldom is it wise merely to ignore or brush an accusation aside, even if it seems to work for the short run. What it would look like if we could what it would look like if we could tell all the core fear let all the core fears and accusations that sting us and shadow our face in shame stand in line to spew their venom. If the accusations of the one who curses have been swallowed by Jesus and every debt I owe has been publicly named and canceled at the cross, then it is time not merely to give the accusation no power, but in fact to let my heart feel how much power and joy the accuser has already fouled. To stand accused is the context in which I let Jesus stand before the accuser to take each judgment as his own, rather than for me to bear it alone. I will not find solace in escaping or trying to mitigate the accusations. The only relief I know that will last is to know that God is not the accuser and God takes the accusations against me personally as a direct assault on his promise and goodness. And so what, what Dan Allender is saying there is that when accusation comes into your life and there's something you've done, don't minimize it. Don't, don't, don't minimize it, but stare the accusation, stare the charge square in the face. Stare it square in the face. Do not minimize your sin. Don't minimize or defend your sin. And Christians do this all the time. And so you, you, the way you do this, you didn't look at porn. You stumbled. You, you, you fell. You, you made a mistake. No! You sinned. You chose sex over God. You chose your own gratification over relationship. You, because of this gospel story that you've been brought into, are able to stare that accusation in the face and not minimize it, not take away from it, not blunt the sharpness of the pain that it is. You don't minimize it. 
don't minimize it because minimizing it is a, it, it doesn't work because one, it's a practice in lying. It's deceitful. But then two, the reason you feel like you have to minimize the, the, the sharpness of the pain of your sin or of that accusation is actually because you think that that accusation still defines who you are. The only reason you are going to feel the need to minimize your sin or defend your sin is if you're still buying into the lie that that accusation defines who you are. And so when you minimize it, you actually reinforce the accusation. But as a Christian, as one who's received this great story, been plucked up out of your own story of sin and placed in this great story of Jesus Christ, you don't have to minimize because it's no long, that accusation no longer defines who you are. And you can let God come to your defense. And that reinforces the freedom from that accusation. Listen, listen to this from, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In, Ze- in Zechariah 3, there's this great story where Zechariah receives a vision of uh, who he calls Joshua the high priest standing before God. And l- l- listen, to, listen to what he describes. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, also known as the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Who who does not speak in that scene? Joshua. He doesn't have a word to say. All it says is that he's standing there in filthy garments before the Lord, and there is Satan the accuser calling out every reason for why he should be condemned. And Joshua is just standing there. And the great turning point in the scene is when? When the Lord steps in and becomes his defender. When the Lord steps in and says, Rebuke you, O Satan. Is this not a brand that I have plucked from the fire? Is this not someone who I have come toward and saved out of his own sin. And and that even goes back to what Paul's saying here. It's God who justifies. It's Jesus who's died. And so you don't have to minimize your sin. You don't have to defend your own sin. You can stare it in the face and watch as God comes to your defense. Reinforcing, again, that God is not the accuser. That God is not the one condemning you. It is this other voice It is this other person, it is your own mind, but it is not God. In fact, God is the one coming to rescue you from that accusation. He's the one coming in to to your defense. And so one of the ways you want to live free from accusation, one practical tip, stop minimizing it. In fact, stare it in the face. And watch as God interrupts those accusations when you, as you rehearse the gospel story and you see God come to your own defense, that it is God who justifies. What charge is there? That it is Jesus who's died, who's been raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for me, who's going to condemn me. So you don't minimize sin. You don't blunt the pain of accusation. You receive it full force and you believe that God will come to your defense. And if you can do that, 
if you can embrace that boldly and watch the grace of God flood into that moment and come to your defense, then you can also do this second practical application, which is this. Confess. They're connected. You, you stare your own charges and accusation, all the reasons you should be condemned. You stare that in the face and you watch as the grace of God comes into your life. And then you also have the freedom to authentically, vulnerably confess to God and to others. If your story is rooted in this great gospel story that Paul gives in Romans 8, what is there to hide? What, what is there to hide? What, what are you hiding from? If grace rules everything in the Christian life as it does, and God's promise and goodness is as rich in the gospel as it says it is, what is there to hide? What is there to fear in confessing? And I know there's a lot of things you can point to. The pain of it, the disruption in the relationship, all that, totally. But none of that ultimately is going to change who you are. And because of that, you can confess. And not only that, but we as a community of faith can actually give one another grace. Because here's the truth. Those who get grace, give grace. If we, in our own personal Christian lives, see and stare accusation in the face and let the grace of God come rescue us in that, we are going to be a community of faith ready to give grace to one another. And what a rich life that would be. Because those who get grace, give grace. And so... Confess your sins to one another. Don't, don't hide. Go to your community group leader. Go to your close Christian friend and share with them the ways that your sin is, is destroying you, is leading your heart away from God. Don't minimize it. Don't defend it. Just speak it as it is and watch. Even as this person <laughs> becomes a representation to you of the great grace of God that meets you even when you feel like it never could. And so the way we live free from accusation is we root ourselves in this greater story that God has plucked us out of our own sinful stories and into the story of salvation that Jesus has accomplished. We, we, we reform our minds and renew our minds to think of our lives under the banner of that story, that that's the plot line of our life. And then practically what that looks like is owning how we failed to God into one another and watching as the grace of God interrupts those accusations, no, indeed rebukes them and gives you new life, new confidence, peace and hope that is untouchable because it's safe in Jesus Christ and all the grace that he gives and all the work that he's done. Let's pray.